0: If you please stand for the reading of God's word, we'll be reading, five uh, Matthew chapter five verses one through twelve, uh, and as Bruce said, um, talking on the next beatitude, uh, focusing on purity. So, if you would follow along with me as I read. And seeing the multitudes, he went up to a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And uh, I want to thank you for this series and for Bruce's opportunities to walk down this path with us, God, as he instructs us and shows us many of the things that we may have not seen before in the Beatitudes, Lord. Um, I pray that you open our hearts and let your word um, and your power go through Bruce as we are open and ready to receive. I pray this in your name. Amen.
1: Have you noticed that people today are becoming more and more consumed with purity? We're consumed with drinking pure water, breathing pure air, even eating pure food. Every year we spend over half a billion dollars on water purifiers, and we spend over $15 billion on bottled water alone. In fact, that stat makes... Uh, America, the biggest bottled water drinkers on the planet in terms of just sheer volume. There are now companies advertising pure air systems for your house. They will come to your house and and they'll help you do an analysis on your ventilation system and help you set up a new system so that you can now breathe cleaner air in your home. And of course, they they will do this for a sum of money. Thousands of dollars. There's now even an online store called Just Pure Foods with the tagline, it's all the crave. They are committed to creating the tastiest and healthiest plant-based snack foods using the highest quality and purest ingredients that they can source, which means you can now buy snacks like kale and zucchini chips. Yes. Yes. You can even buy on Amazon.com a pure food cookbook to help you eat clean with seasonal plant-based recipes. Now, there is no doubt in my mind that all this concern that our country has about purity is good for people's health. But here's the tragedy of it all. Our culture is consumed with purity except in the one area that matters most, and that's the heart. We can drink pure water, we can breathe pure air, and eat pure foods all we want, but if we don't have pure hearts, it doesn't matter. When it's all said and done, the only thing that matters is a pure heart. God's primary interest is in the heart. We see this all the way back in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel sixteen seven, when God says, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In 1 Chronicles 28, 9, it says, For the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. And so God is much, much more concerned about the state of your heart than He is about the state of your health. In light of this, the most important question then that we can ask today is, Is my heart right with God? Is my heart right with God? Jesus confronts us with this very question when he says here in the sixth beatitude, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In other words, Jesus says that only the pure in heart will see God. Now that's both a a very joyful thought, but it's also a very frightful thought. As soon as Jesus spoke this word pure, let me tell you, bells and buzzers sounded for those listening on that side of the mountain. If any one word had captured what religion was all about in that day, it was this very word purity. Purity. After all, the Pharisees defined purity almost completely in terms of things that other people could see. In other words, it was external. Purity became a matter of of just keeping so many rules and regulations. But Jesus now comes on the scene and he's now turning upside down their very concept of what it was pure. Pure the very idea of what it meant to be pure. At one point in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus told the Pharisees that they were way too worried about cleaning the outside of the cup while the inside was filthy. Jesus then compared these same Pharisees to whitewashed tombs, which were sparkling and bright on the outside, but filled with death and decay on the inside. Now that's pretty harsh words to say the least, but they illustrated where Jesus thought it was most important to be pure. Not on the outside, but on the inside. The heart. The heart is utterly crucial to Jesus. A pure heart is what He cares about most. Why? Because Jesus is telling us here in this beatitude that only the pure in heart will see God. The bottom line, that the Lord can see our hearts, and when our hearts are purer, we can see the Lord. So let's unpack this sixth beatitude. And as we do, I pray that you will leave here with a, a much greater concern about a pure heart than you might have for pure water, air, and food. Notice the pronouncement that Jesus makes in the sixth beatitude. It's a simple pronouncement, and yet it's a very powerful pronouncement. He basically says, here, blessed are the pure in heart. And of course, we need to define and describe and find out what exactly does that mean? What is the idea that Jesus has behind this? So what does it mean, then, to be, quote, pure in heart? Well, in answering this question, we need to first begin with the very word that he's talking about, heart. Because perhaps there are some of us here this morning who think that Heart, well, that's the organ inside my body which pumps the blood all through my body. But that is not what Jesus means here when he uses the word heart in this beatitude. He's not referring to the organ which circulates blood. When Jesus uses the word heart, we usually think of the place of our emotions. Such as when I tell my wife, Darla, I love you with all my heart. Or... We might say someone's heart is broken, and we mean that he or she is sad. They have heartache. heart. But in the Bible, heart re- refers to more than just the emotions. It also refers to the intellect and to the will. I like the story that's told about a little boy who was asked by his teacher, where is your heart? And the little boy responded, my heart is where I sit down. In surprise, the teacher asked, well, how did you get that idea? And the little boy replied, well, every time I do something good, my grandma pats me there and says, bless your little heart. <laughs> now, in all actuality, that's a pretty good description. Because the heart is really the, quote, seat of your entire personality of who you are it's the sum total of of your emotions and your mind and your will the emotions refer to our feelings the mind refers to our intellect and the will refers to our decision making and all three summed up together we could say is talking about our heart in other words the heart it signifies what you are all about as a person It signifies what you are all about at the very core, at the very center of your being. It's your true identity, in other words. And you put all this together, and we now can answer the question, what is the heart? And in biblical terms, here's the answer in a simplified, condensed manner. The heart is the command center, or you could even write the control center of one's life. The heart is the real you, who makes the decisions in life. Now, how many Star Trek fans do we have here? Right, good. Right, yeah, more than what I thought. Yeah, awesome. Just think Captain's Chair on the Star Trek Enterprise. Because it's from this chair where Captain Kirk makes the decisions to boldly go where no man has gone before. The heart, in other words, is the Captain's Chair of your life no wonder then god tells us in proverbs 4 23 above all else guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life it is the heart where salvation is experienced. you may recall what paul writes in romans chapter 10 verses 9 through 10 where he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The heart, of course, is also the source of all our problems. We are prone... We blame people. We're prone to blame our circumstances. We are even prone to blame God for the wrong things that we do. But the real problem lies in the heart. Jeremiah 17.9 describes our heart in this manner. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Neither time nor experience has changed the human heart. God's indictment before the flood is just as valid today. God tells us in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jesus spells it out in even greater detail in Matthew 15, 19, where he says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. And then he gives examples of those evil thoughts such as murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. And so all sin has its root in the heart and it's from the heart that we act and that we speak. And so if filthy things come flying out of your mouth then that means all kinds of filthy things are inside your heart. Now, The first step, though, in seeing God is admitting that my heart is sinful, that my heart is deceitful, in the words of Jeremiah, that I have a heart problem, and admitting that I cannot see God unless my heart is changed. You can assess what is going on in your heart by what you say, by what you do, but if you clean up your behavior only, you will miss the mark wide. The reality is, we do not have pure hearts, and so we desperately need new hearts, and that's exactly what God provides for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Going back to the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah tells us in 24-7, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. This is why the critical questions for anyone to ask are not, do I have enough religion, or am I even doing the right things, but rather, has God changed my heart? Because once God changes your heart, the outside will take care of the rest. What we say, what we do. And so salvation, first and foremost, is not some external rearrangement of certain actions. Oh no. Salvation. What God gives to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, let me tell you, it is a a radical transformation of the heart which, yes, inevitably results in a radical transformation of one's life. So how does this happen then? Well, Jesus called this experience being born again in John chapter 3. Jesus told a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, he says, verily, verily, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God, unless they are born again. And how are we born again? In the same chapter, Jesus explains that it is by the Spirit of God, through our faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, speaking about the Gentiles, who were born again by the Spirit of God, Peter testifies in Acts 15, 8 and 9, he says, God, who knows the heart, showed that He accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as He did to us. God, He did not discriminate between us and them, for He purified their hearts by faith. God tells us in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. Here's the point. You will never be pure in heart until God gives you a new heart. We desperately need God to purify us. And then in response, we desperately need to pursue that purity for the rest of our lives. This is where our beatitude now comes in. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But don't think that purity of heart means having a perfect heart or even a sinless heart. If it did, not even the godliest believer who has ever lived would have the remotest possibility of embracing the promise that the pure in heart will see God. Remember David? King David of the Old Testament? The one who committed adultery? And then to cover that up, he committed murder? But in repentance of his sin, he cried out in Psalm chapter 51, verse 10, God, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Listen, David did not have a sinless heart, but he did have a pure heart, and that made him a man after God's own heart. And so there is hope for every one of us here this morning. With this in mind, we can now turn to the next question. What then is a, quote, pure heart? The word pure in the Bible has two basic meanings. The first meaning, pure, means it's the idea of clean through the removal of contamination. And so in this manner, the pure in heart then is free from the contamination of sin. But there's another meaning. Pure also means unmixed. For example, pure gold is not, quote, clean gold but rather it's 100% gold. In other words, it's not mixed with any other metals or elements. This beatitude that Jesus gives us here takes on the second meaning predominantly. And so pure in heart here is the basic idea of singleness of heart as opposed to duplicity or a double heart or even a divided heart. A pure heart, then, makes your whole being have integrity. We're familiar with that word. A pure heart frees you from the tyranny of a divided self, making your inner life whole and your whole life oriented in a single direction toward God. In other words, a pure heart is not diluted. It's not defiled. It's not divided. Instead, a pure heart is loyal to God. It is honest before God and others, and it is also fervent for the holiness of God. Let's look at that a little bit in more detail here. Those three ideas of purity in heart. First, notice this. Purity in heart involves personal loyalty personal loyalty to God when God cleanses sinners and makes them his children he does more than just merely wash away our sins he puts us or puts within us a new heart that desires that that wants to focus wholly on God God tells us in Jeremiah 32 39 I will give them singleness of heart in action so that they will always fear me and that all will then go well for them and for their children after them. David exhorts his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28, 9, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. And so purity of heart Is this idea of of total allegiance to God. Our hearts are, are undivided in our loyalty to God. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher and theologian, captured the idea in a book he wrote called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. In other words, to be pure in heart is to be totally dedicated to the Lord in all of your life. It's what David himself prays in Psalms 86, 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. But here's the problem. And it's the problem for all of us here this morning. Our hearts are not undivided in their devotion to God. We try to do one thing, but instead we do the opposite. Have we not all experienced that? I mean, Paul writes about this dilemma, this conundrum, even himself in Romans chapter 7. We want to follow God, but we battle other desires that we still have, sinful desires. Throughout the Old Testament, when God speaks then of purifying the heart He means that we need our hearts cleansed from idolatry. Now, that's not a word we use very often, but it's a powerful word that captures the idea of what it means to have a loyal heart, is that we are cleansed from idolatry. God makes this promise to us in Ezekiel 36, 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and then he adds this phrase, and from all your idols. If purity of heart is then loyalty to God, the danger that our hearts need cleansing from is idolatry, idols, Do you need cleansing from any idols here this morning? You probably do not have a statue glued to the dashboard of your card. I doubt any of you have a totem pole standing on your front lawn. And I doubt that any of you prepare any sacrifices for the sun god or the moon god. But from a biblical perspective, an idol is anything you live for other than God himself. It's whatever you orient your life around. It's whatever lights you up. It's whatever floats your boat. It's whatever you are committed to. Whatever you value most in the universe, that's the object of your worship. Okay then, like what, you might ask? Well, there's an almost limitless number of idols for us to choose from, idols that we struggle with, and all of them have adverse consequences for our lives, idols such as comfort, praise, security, affirmation, approval, reputation, the list goes on and on and on. But our idols are never what they seem. They promise the world, and yet they only give you heartache. And a pure-hearted person recognizes this, a pure-hearted person responds then to God's gracious demand to be the center of his life by ditching his idols. In other words, cutting them down. Why is this so essential? Because without purity of heart, no one can stand before God. David himself again writes in Psalms twenty-four three through four. He poses this question, and then he answers it. He says, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And here's his answer. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, which is what an idol is. So first and foremost, purity of heart involves our personal loyalty to God but it also has immediate outward effects. Which brings us to number two. Purity of heart involves relational honesty. It involves relational honesty. What begins as personal loyalty to God will always work itself out in relational honesty with God or before God and then on a horizontal plane with other people. Therefore, relational honesty is where my whole life Public and private is transparent before God and people. To be pure in heart also means that, that we must be honest honest with other people about our, our struggles, our, our hang ups, our sins, our weaknesses, our flaws, and the mistakes we have made. We should not pretend to be anything better than we really are, though we do that nearly constantly, don't we? I know I struggle with that. I mean, I'm the pastor. I don't want to be seen as having problems and struggles. And so I want to present myself in a certain way that you might think better of me than what my heart really, truly is. John Stott describes this struggle when he writes, I quote his words, yet how few of us live one life and live it in the open. We are tempted to wear a different mask and play a different role according to each occasion. This is not reality, but play-acting, which is the essence of hypocrisy. Some people weave round themselves such a tissue of lies that they can no longer tell which part of them is real and which is make-believe. And just think, John Stott wrote all of that before the days of social media. Now please know I am not anti-social media. I actually believe and think that Facebook, Twitter, and the rest of social media can be very useful to God's kingdom purposes. But here's what I've observed social media is about the control of appearances. And those appearances that we post on social media are not always honest about the reality of our lives, our hearts. For example, let's say you go on vacation with your family. I'm sure some of you here are already planning your summer vacations, and there are certain things you post and certain things you don't post from your family vacation. Picture of a happy family on the beach, post it. Fighting in the minivan on the 23 hour drive to the beach, that one never appears on Facebook you post quote date night with hubby and with it a picture of the two of you gazing lovingly into each other's eyes but nobody ever posts that late night argument with a picture of how mad you are at the same husband you just posted how much you love now we don't we don't intend we're not We don't purposely intend to to be dishonest in our postings. We're simply trying to be positive people and we want to share our life experiences with the world. But the screen on the phone seems to lend itself to hypocrisy over transparency. It's like the t-shirt that says, May your life someday be as awesome as you make it appear to be on Facebook. Well, let me ask you, how, how, how important is your appearance on social media to you? And what does that say about your relational honesty? Ask yourself then, does anyone know the real you? Do you ever take off your mask before others? You see, to be pure in heart means you have the courage to admit, first and foremost to God, but also to other people, that you are not Perfect and that your heart is not always pure, and that you need continual cleansing from the Lord, whereas hypocrisy is the sin of lying to God and yourself and other people about who you really are on the inside. As one author writes, hypocrisy is nothing more than skin-deep holiness, and nothing is more loathsome in the sight of God. Do you realize that the greatest single charge that Jesus levied against the Pharisees was that of hypocrisy? Nothing made Jesus angrier, nothing riled him up more than their self-righteous posturing. And so when the Pharisees tried to please God by majoring on these outward actions while ignoring the heart, Jesus rebuked them for it in Matthew 15, 8, when he says, These people, oh, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Later on, Jesus even cursed the Pharisees. He cursed them for their hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, 27, and 28, he says, Woe to you. That word woe is the opposite of blessed here in the Beatitudes. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. In other words, if you only deal with what happens on the outside, you fall into the ditch of hypocrisy, becoming just another whitewashed tomb in the eyes of God. Clean on the outside, but full of filth and decay on the inside. On the other hand, whenever you read David's Psalms, And David wrote a lot of psalms. You realize he was utterly honest before God. He never prayed anything he did not mean. And when you read about the life of David, you see a man who sought to live openly and honestly. No, not perfectly. In fact, twice in his life, David resorted to duplicity and hypocrisy, and in both instances, it got him into big-time trouble with sin. But when confronted with his sin, you know what David did? You know how he responded? He repented of his sin. He confessed his sin, and God cleansed his heart and restored him to being a man after God's own heart. So the pure in heart live, first and foremost, with, a, with personal loyalty to God. But they also live with relational honesty to God and before people. And finally, number three, purity of heart involves spiritual fervency. You see, for the pure in heart, holiness is not just a pastime that we enjoy. It's not just a pastime that we can take it or leave it. But rather, it is a passion that we pursue with fervency. We are fervently focused on glorifying God in every part of our lives. Even though perfect holiness can never be achieved in this life, it should be what Charles Colson calls the everyday business of every Christian. This means all sin, every sin is to be hated and holiness is to be pursued. Now, why must we pursue holiness? Perhaps you've recognized this in your own life. But nobody drifts into holiness. In fact, just the opposite. We drift where? We drift into sinfulness. Therefore, holiness, purity of heart, it requires a a relentless pursuit on our part. In fact, Hebrews 12.14, the writer there, tells us, he says, make every effort. Make every effort, he says, to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Psalm 119.9 asks the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. And in that conviction, he's able to add in verse 11, I have hidden your word, Lord, in my heart, that I might not sin against you. As we learned in the fourth beatitude, a loss of appetite for physical food, that's a serious thing. That's an indication that something is wrong physically with a person's health but a loss of appetite for spiritual food. Let me tell you, that is disastrous. When we neglect reading God's Word, when we neglect hearing of God's Word, listen, we have no grounds for claiming to be pure in heart and no hope of being so. As one pastor and author wrote, we love God as much as we love His Word. And so if we want to be pure in heart, then we must pursue God. We must pursue His holiness with It it must be a relentless pursuit in our lives. What Jesus is telling us in this beatitude is that there's no substitute for purity of heart. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, which brings us now to the promise of this beatitude. Notice that number two, the promise is here, for they shall see God. Now that is an incredible statement for they shall see God. Especially when you consider what the Bible tells us, such as in John chapter 1, verse 18, when John writes, No one has seen God at any time. What's up? John says, No one sees God. Jesus says, For they shall see God. People have seen appearances of the Lord in various forms such as Moses on Mount Sinai, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and even others, but no one has literally seen God face to face. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses audaciously and boldly requested of God, now show me your glory. In verse 20, God tells Moses, oh, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So what does it mean then when Jesus says, for they shall see God? Well, let me just be upfront with you. There's no doubt that this promise, in particular, this very promise out of all the Beatitudes, is the most difficult to fully understand. That's just another way of saying people aren't really sure what exactly it means. We have some ideas from Scripture. And so here's what I will present to you as to what I believe it means after studying it this week. The reward of purity is this. We will see God now and ultimately in eternity. Let me explain that because you're like, wow, that really helped me, Bruce. Now, if you tell your neighbor about this promise, I guarantee you the chances are he or she won't be very impressed. I'm going to see God. In fact, they may even respond, there you go again with your pie in the sky when you die talk. But this promise, folks, listen, that he gives us, that Jesus gives us in this beatitude, is no pie in the sky. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so when people's hearts are pure, then the eyes of the heart are open to seeing God here and now, to begin with. We see God most clearly in the gospel of Jesus Christ at the moment of our conversion. We also see God in creation. We see God in the circumstances of life and how He arranges the circumstances of life for His glory and even for our own good. We see God in the unfolding of world history, world events as well as in God's Word and even in prayer. Someone once asked Helen Keller, isn't it a terrible thing to be blind? To which she responded, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. And that's kind of the idea here of seeing God now and here In this context, seeing God means to have a deep experience of God. It's to know Him intimately and personally. To be awestruck by His glory and comforted by His grace. And so while here and now we do not literally see God with our physical eyes, we see Him through our hearts. We see what He's doing. We see the effects of His movement, His grace, and His power working in us and through us. But Jesus is also promising something much more here. And that is, we will see God ultimately in eternity. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, You and I are being prepared to enter into the presence of the King of Kings. John tells us in Revelation 22, 3 and 4, The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will see Him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. This is what we are looking forward to. This is the promise that we hold on to. And in that moment, our hearts will be so flooded with joy, it will feel like they're about to burst open. We will feel like Job himself. In Job 19, 25 and 27, when he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, He will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Now, it is all too easy, though. In this world in which we live, this culture in which we are absorbed in, it is all too easy to think that the most important part of your life is what other people can see. But in this beatitude, Jesus is telling us that the most important part of your life is the part that only God can see, and that is the heart. God knows whether your heart is pure. And the good news here this morning is God wants your heart to be pure. That's why He has provided Jesus Christ, His Son. In the Gospel, we receive new hearts and God purifies us. And for only then can you see God and in seeing God receive all that He has and enjoy all that He is. And so we stop and we ask and we contemplate this final question. How's your vision of God here this morning? Do you have a heart that is capable of seeing God? A pure heart begins with conversion to Jesus Christ when God gives you a new heart. And it continues through spiritual growth as we follow Jesus Christ with all of our hearts. But also know that nothing, nothing robs the heart of spiritual vision like sin. Which means we must deal with the impurities in the heart through confession of our sin and through cleansing of our sin that God provides for us through Jesus Christ. Oh, how we... Love, and we claim, and rightfully so, the promise that Jesus gives us in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a phenomenal, phenomenal beatitude we have here from the Lord. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray. Before I pray, if you've never been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, listen, I invite you this morning while the praise team sings to turn to Jesus Christ and let Him give you a new heart. Cry out to the Lord and ask Him to forgive you. Let Him know you want to put your faith and trust in His Son Jesus Christ, and what He did on the cross in the payment of your sins, that He is your substitute, and you are trusting Him for your salvation. And if you are here already as a believer in Christ, but you know your heart is it's not pure, it's, it's filled with sin, then let me encourage you to go to the Lord and confess your sin, and let Him begin His cleansing work, let Him purify your heart this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for the phenomenal promise that You give us in this beatitude. And Lord, we thank You for giving us new hearts, pure hearts, through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, give us the grace to live fully devoted to You and to pursue Your holiness. And for those times when we do sin, we give thanks for Your forgiveness and cleansing, And Lord, it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. As the praise team sings, will you respond as need be?